recognizing thoughts and beliefs and investigating the nature of thoughts and beliefs is valuable at all phases of this realization process. It uh, comes into play in different ways as insights uh, clarify. But if we um, investigate the nature of belief itself and we see in real time how it functions in the psyche, um, we've gone a long way toward clarity, toward clarifying the, the big problem, whatever you want to call it, the problem of birth and death, to put it in a Buddhist framework, or the problem of you, to put it in your own um, personal uh, framework. <clears throat> the problem, uh, of course, there is no actual problem, but the problem we're talking about is the point of friction, the point of struggle that we all uh, identify at some point in our life um, as the central issue, that which branches out into all other apparent problems, all other apparent struggles, to the mass of suffering, to the life of quiet desperation, to the um, nearly constant doubt, hesitation, feeling of being not in the right place, not, in the, not at the right time, or getting it, just generally getting it wrong, being in the wrong class. Um, heard people say, I, I felt like an alien in my own life for years. Uh, all these descriptions are um, very poignant and point to this experience of unsatisfactoriness or something just being off, just being a little bit off or a lot off. Um, but I think as we investigate, look inward, practice and so forth, we find it's probably a pretty simple issue, but it has pretty broad implications. It's actually a very simple issue. Um, but although it is simple, the complexity of thought, the complexity of mind, the agility of mind, uh, the slipperiness of belief when we're still reacting to belief, when we're still identifying as resistance to belief, it can be, it can seem daunting, seem overly complex. Um, so starting by just investigating the nature of thought in real time can be tremendously valuable. Of course, I'm not just talking to a group of practitioners in a retreat. I'm not just talking to a group of people who online uh, like the topic of non-duality are somewhere in the process of awakening themselves. I'm really talking to anybody who can resonate with this simple um, inward recognition that something about my life feels off, feels kind of inherently uncomfortable. <clears throat> and although you could probably perceive everyone around you has some form of that. There's an agreed upon message that actually, no, we're okay. Everything's okay. We got to figure it out. We know how to manifest stuff. We know how to make things happen. We know how to succeed in the classical sense, or we know how to succeed in the spiritual sense. But something about that doesn't feel right either. Something about that feels a little, a little inauthentic to you. You're in a good place. It may not feel like a good place because it's very isolating to feel like, 
you know something's wrong and you also know no one has the answer that you've come into contact with. Um, and I'm not gonna tell you I have the answer either. What I am gonna tell you is you, you have access to it. You have access to the solution. I'm not even gonna say it's an answer. I'm just gonna say you have access to the solution. If you can resonate with that message, then this is for you. I'm talking to you. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter if you're Buddhist. Doesn't matter if you're uh, Hindu. Doesn't matter if you like contemporary online Dharma or don't even know what it is. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're oriented toward monasticism or uh, solitude or you're oriented toward uh, the conventional life. If you have kids, if you have a, a job, if you're busy, if you're not busy, doesn't matter. What matters is you can resonate with this message that um, something is just not quite right. Uh, and that's good news. Good news to acknowledge it. If you don't acknowledge it, it's very easy to stay a little bit unconscious. Just enough to, to overlook your own suffering, to live the life of quiet desperation, in the words of Thoreau. So, how do we start to investigate the nature of the problem, the nature of um, whatever's binding us into this feeling of not satisfactory, not okay, something's wrong, I need to do something to fix the problem, I need to do something to fix myself. What's binding us into this? Many people will, will um, intuitively recognize that there's something about thought that seems to be at, um, at the helm there. There's something about thought or thinking that seems to be the source of the problem or at least contributing to the problem. And so we investigate thought. We investigate the nature of thinking uh, the experience of thinking, the process of thinking. Many years ago, uh, before my own sort of shift in identity, um, I read somewhere uh, a very simple statement in a book that said, uh, thinking is the disease of the human mind. I thought it was so interesting because I just hadn't heard anything like that. It was a Zen, Zen master actually who said that. I had never heard anything so simple, so direct, and so obviously true. <laughs> um, partially it was surprising to me because I think we champion thinking in this world. We seem to. We seem to sort of champion good ideas, good thought, good thinking, good reasoning, good logic. And of course there are, are places for that. You know, good logic is important when you're talking about science or discernment and so forth. But I, I could just tell by that statement that there was something being illuminated that was totally true, at least for me, in my experience. Um, and I was a thinker, for sure. I was very analytical, very logical, smart. Um, and I could see the value of logic, I could, and I could trust logic in a certain way. But when it came to me, when it came to my own sense of self, my own sense of me being in this life, um, at best, I knew it wasn't going to touch the issue. And at worst, it could have been part of the problem. Um, somehow I was identifying with those thoughts. I was identifying with that world of thinking about myself. So I'll just make a simple distinction here to answer any questions that could come up about this later. And that is, when I talk about thinking in this way, I'm not talking about logical thinking or problem solving or solving a math problem or thinking through logical fallacies with a, an argument in philosophy or something. That's not the kind of thought I'm actually referring to. I'm referring to um, essentially thought about yourself or thought that feels like 
it's about yourself or a thought that feels like it's referencing back to you. Self-perception, self-awareness, self-judgment, um, and then even emotional aspects of this like self-doubt, self-hatred, anger towards yourself. Um, and then it, it, it actually um, it gets extrapolated into ideas about others. Because if you perceive you're a self, then you perceive a bunch of others out there in a certain way. And that perception laden with thought, belief, um, preconception, et cetera, et cetera, is going to be applied to other selves out there. And then you're going to apply it to the interaction with those other selves. You're going to apply it to relationship. And then it gets on an order of com order of magnitude more complex very quickly, right? That's the thought I'm talking about. I'm talking about thought we identify with. Another very simple um, distinction I could make here is to say um, thought when applied to logic or something like that makes sense. Thought when applied to identity, it doesn't make sense because it can't actually find the identity. It can't, um, there's just nothing for it to actually apply to, but we're trying to apply it. And that may just be a big part of the discomfort there, that we're trying to apply logic to something we can't discern with logic, right? Can you discern a self with logic? Can you discern yourself with logic? Well, I don't know. Why don't you try, right? If, if you don't know, why don't you look? See if you can actually find yourself. See if you can find yourself in a way that you can define by saying, I'm right here. I'm made of this and this. I came from this time and that time. You can find thoughts that say that, but do you find what those thoughts refer to right now in real time? Look and see. Just look and see. That's a big part of this process, actually, is to get genuinely curious. Now, this is kind of the area where I think some people will kind of drop off because it's, it's a little strangely fearful to do this. You know, I mean, we run around in life being obviously self-centered. That's just sort of natural, right? And yet, somehow, we often don't actually stop to look at, well, what the heck am I then? Or where am I? <laughs> Can I actually touch what I am in a very direct, simple way? Like the act of even attempting that can be daunting to some people. It can be, it can create a kind of fear, like a little bit of an existential, you know, discord or something. So um, I just want to point that out because if anyone's listening to this and interested in this topic, but they start to actually look and then something gets a little prickly, a little scared, um, that's okay. It's totally normal. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to feel that fear. It can be surprising, actually. Um, and the, the deeper you look, the more you look, the more ardently you look, the more likely you are to come up across something that's intense, like an intense emotion like fear. So that's all normal. It's all part of the deal here. Um, but when you look and ask yourself, okay, all of these thoughts uh, that I've believed or apparently I believed, I think I believed them, that I came from here, that I was born here, that this is my father, this is my mother, this is my situation, this is my childhood trauma, this is my teenage years, this is my partner, this is my, you know, what I'm interested in, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm not good at. All of those beliefs you have, that see, how do those feel to you when you consider them? Do they feel like you? Do they feel binding? Do they feel freeing? Are they real? What are they? What is the nature of that? Most, most of us can see those are thoughts, ultimately, and yet something feels rather real about them, rather 
identifying. That's, that's what we're investigating, the nature of identification. <clears throat> so once you kind of take inventory about these thoughts, or any inventory of these thoughts about you, about your past, about your where you came from, where you think you're going, what you think you're good at, what you're not good at, how you relate to the world right now, and you take inventory of all those thoughts and realize, okay, those are all thoughts. Now can I find the one that they're about? Right? It would be like if all of your life you kept receiving messages or mail or emails about Joe. Like, oh, Joe's, Joe's interested in this now. Joe loves coffee. Joe really doesn't like pasta. Now Joe's, you know, vegetarian. Joe's going to be, he's going to be healthy because he's vegetarian. If you're receiving these messages like thousands of times a day about Joe, right? Like constantly, like every time you turn around, like your mail slot opens and another thing comes in. It's like, Joe is sexually aroused now. Like Joe is, has a crush on his teacher. You'd be like, wouldn't you be curious? Like who, who the hell is Joe? Like, shouldn't you want to like find Joe? Right? But you receive all these messages about yourself. Do you look for yourself? <laughs> about you. You. Just take take the word Joe out and put in you. It's about you, right? No, I'm the one that's pissed off now. I'm the one that's having a reaction. I'm the one that doesn't like this kind of food and does like that kind of food. I am the one that has this and that. And, right? So if you kind of stand back and look at that, that message center, you're, you're, it's like an inbox that never stops coming. Messages about you, 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 you. Why do you believe it so much? Why does it feel so real? Well, one assumption would be because you know there's, there's a you there that is actually the one that they're about. But what if you can't find it? What happens when you can't actually find that you, <laughs> right? You look and you're like, oh my God, there's nothing there. Or at least I can't find it. Wait a minute, who's looking for it? <clears throat> yeah. So it can get really quiet really quickly if you take this kind of process up. Um, and the mere investigation of this, by the way, is valuable. Even if it leads to confusion, it's valuable. Even if it leads to disorientation, it's valuable. In a way that I can't necessarily explain right now, but the investigation itself is valuable. This is, leads to the term inquiry. Inquiry is valuable regardless of what you think is happening in the inquiry. <laughs> and often what's happening is not what you think is happening anyway. But it's valuable to ask. And all I can tell you is if you have some instinctual orientation to truth, something called truth, um, that which is real, that which is true, uh, if you have that orientation, if some instinctual part of you knows there's value to that, um, then all I can say is you can trust it. You know, But you're going to go through a period of um, disorientation or a period where things don't seem so clear. You know, you're going to go into the desert for a while with this. That's just how it goes. And it's okay, of course. Another way of saying it is if you see that this system set up where you're constantly receiving these messages about Joe and just taking it all for granted that that's the only game in town is obsessing about Joe and thinking about what Joe wants and what Joe doesn't want and you know just Joe, Joe, Joe. Like if that if that obsession is it seems like something's just inherently uncomfortable about it, then it's it really opens up some space to look around and see, well, what else is going on besides Joe in this world, in this experience? Like, do I have to focus on Joe so much? Right? Do I have to focus on the thoughts about Joe, the messages or the thoughts about me? What happens when I don't look at those? So obsessively, what actually happens? What starts to be perceived? What starts to be seen? What starts to be felt? What starts to happen? Yeah. So, 
this is to take up the, um, I hesitate to say spiritual journey because it's a, it's such a loaded term nowadays, but this is the, the quest, the identity quest, I, I suppose. Um, it is the spiritual journey, but it's, it's really um, a journey that investigates the nature of you. It has to be about identity. Um, and, and there has to be a willingness to, to experience a disruption, um, a disruption in what you think you are, right? Because we've already looked into this absurdity of getting all these messages about Joe thousands of times a day for years and not actually looking into who Joe is. So now we're looking into who Joe is. Like, okay, let's actually see if Joe exists before I believe all these messages, spend all of my time reading the messages, learning about the messages, and and if I and if I could find Joe, if I could find Joe, maybe I don't need the messages, right? If you if you're if you're in connection with Joe, do you need some messages telling you about Joe, or is he just right there, right? So, however that plays out for you is fine. You may find that sense of you that's so obvious, so simple, so direct that you don't need to look at thoughts about yourself. You don't need to entertain messages about yourself to try to collect some hobbled together conglomeration of beliefs to make yourself feel stable. That kind of stability is always um, unpredictable, uh, unreliable, right? You're trying to hold together all these bits of information and, be and beliefs and memories. That's so uncomfortable, so unstable. That's the suffering, right? So maybe there's just a totally different way to experience reality. And maybe it's actually stopping doing that. So I'm just kind of pointing to different ways that, that you can approach this. Get curious about Joe. Stop looking at the messages altogether. Just don't look at them. Who cares? I don't care what those messages say about Joe. I want to experience Joe. <laughs> I want to know what Joe is, who Joe is. Um, stop listening to the messages and you might be really surprised what's there. Um, maybe the messages are distorted. Maybe someone's got it out for Joe and they're trying to convince you Joe's not such a good guy. You know? Or Joe's really picky, or Joe's an asshole, or Joe is self-sabotaging, you know? Maybe maybe there's some some distorting force in the system, right? Joe hates himself. Oh, Joe hates himself. Oh, my God. Does he? Really? Oh, no. I just changed my idea about Joe to keep up with this, right? What? Do you really have to keep up with all that? It's nonsense. But... But again, if you're if you're in the if you're in the message reading business, if you think that's what you're supposed to do all day long, you're gonna have a lot of beliefs about Joe, and you're gonna feel like that's important, right? Um, maybe you think he's like in a different room of your house, and you haven't gone to look for him, right? You just assume he's back there in the living room, doing Joe stuff, right? Being a jerk, self-doubting, you know, being picky. Um, Right? The messages keep telling you that. <laughs> yeah, so that's how absurd thoughts are, though, when you really start to see how absurd they are. Um, <clears throat> so go look for Joe. Look for yourself. Look for the what it is that's, you know, freaking receiving all these messages. <laughs> What's the receiver? What is it that believe, has that fundamental belief that you need to pay attention to even one message from thoughts, much less a thousand a day or 10,000 a day? What, where, who's holding that belief? What if you find the one or don't find the one 
that seems to hold that belief that you have to pay attention to, to all these messages about Joe? What if that's a really narrow bandwidth of exist the bandwidth of existence, really narrow way of experiencing reality is constantly listening to a certain kind of insistent voice over and over and over in your mind because it says it's about you or Joe, right? What if you just don't listen to it for a minute, for a second, for 10 minutes? Um, what would happen? And there are those who have figured out what happens when you don't listen to those for a long enough period of time. And then they come back and report that something pretty wild and surprising happens. That um, that's not the only game in town. It's just that when you've been at that game so long, and by the way, everyone's at the same game. There, everyone out there that you bump into is also receiving messages about Joe, right? So now you're talking collectively about this collective ego, this collective, what it means to be a person, a human. So, you know, what competitiveness, right? Joe's competitive. Um, uh, Joe's driven. Joe has anxiety and depression, right? Like it's a collective thing. Um, and what happens when you stop believing the messages, you stop receiving the messages, stop reading the messages. Everything starts looking different. The collective looks different. The communication looks different. People look different. Um, but again, the collective way we talk about things, the ways we communicate, all that stuff is so centered on Joe or self in one way or another that we almost have nothing to talk about or we don't know what to talk about after that realization. It's like, oh God, what? You know, you felt like an alien before. Now you feel like a different kind of alien, but you feel more connected to everything. But not, but to people, it's different because, you know, it's the language is still there, the the tendency, the looking for validation, it's still there, and you still have the tendency too, but it's strong in, in interactions with other people. So, this is one of those areas that's a little, um, I don't know if people talk directly about it. I guess I do on occasion, but it, it, there's challenges after awakening with just interacting with people, everyone, <laughs> your partner, your family. Your work coworkers and just random people. There's there's a there's a strong tendency to return to to manipulate the conversation to start talking about Joe again, right? Even when you know Joe is not this has nothing to do with Joe anymore, um, and so you find that tendency. It's it's a it's a habituated pattern of thinking and communication and ultimately behavior that's trying to reify or reconstitute the sense of the separate person that we're calling Joe for fun that has all these qualities and problems and looking for solutions. We all know Joe, we're all very intimate with Joe, we know all his problems and we're all intertwined with it, right? We're all enmeshed with, with the problems of Joe and the way he interacts with the world. That's called the human condition. Um, and that itself is, has a binding effect. It tends to pull us back into the mind, pull us back into a sense of identifying um, so yeah, even after awakening, that that certainly does happen um, for a while. It can happen for a while. Um, some of that gets worked out, not necessarily at the level of thought, but more at the level of emotion and instinct. Although I will say, even then, it's that reflective nature of thought and consciousness that are 
that are distorting, but it, they're harder to see. It's, it becomes more like non-conceptual thought and perception um, that has more to do with a sense of avoidance or a sense of pulling back from life, um, a sense of disassociation than it does about conceptual thoughts or belief-based thoughts. Um, so to see that part of things or to investigate that part of things, the, the sort of non-conceptual, um, almost emotional component that comes into play, it can also be helpful just to look closely at the thought mechanism for that as well. So if you notice in real time how thoughts function in the mind, you'll notice that there can be a single thought, could be anything, a, a sort of narrative thought, like, oh, I'm confused right now. I don't understand what's going on, okay? It can be that one simple thought. We talked about this the other day. And you can actually just notice that thought as such and just kind of hold it in whatever thought space there is or whatever space the thought appears in and just keep it right there, like, I'm confused about this. Don't think beyond that. Don't add thoughts to it. <clears throat> How long can you actually observe that thought? Doesn't the mind kind of just stop? If you don't, again, you're not thinking about that thought. You're not going down the thought road. It becomes rather neutral. So any thought, you can do this with any thought, by the way, even the most accursed thoughts. What makes them accursed isn't the subject of the thought. It's your reaction to it. So this is where we're getting into the second phase I was talking about is noticing reactivity within thought, reactivity within consciousness. So this starts at such a young age and starts happening so consistently that we don't even remember it. But it's not one individual thought. It's not one narrative or one snapshot of the mind or even one visual image that causes suffering. It's, it's, it's actually a dynamic process within reflective consciousness. And that dynamic process has to do with, with pushing and pulling. It has to do with reactivity to thought. Right? You don't hate your mother, you hate your thought of your mother. Right? You don't hate uh, the government, you hate your idea of the government. You're reacting to your own idea, for sure. Um, especially, it's especially easy to see actually in things like the government or a corporation, big moniker titles that, 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 that if you unpack them, have they're so complex, right? Can you really hate all of this corporation? Like every person that works for the corporation, do you hate all them? Do you hate the history of the corporation? Do you hate the, 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 the machine inside the warehouse that makes a product? Like what is it that you hate there, right? Um, it's, it's an idea and that's just an example. Like we, we hate all kinds of things and we love all kinds of things. You know, you love your partner. Maybe you also probably love your idea of what your partner is. Um, so we have this dynamic push and pull within the mind um, with our own beliefs, with our own thoughts, with our own monikers for the symbolic representation of what we consider to be reality. That's where the, that's where the deeper realization goes when we start to see how we're reacting and why we're reacting and what we're actually reacting to. And to see that we really only can react to thoughts, really. Um, we can extrapolate reaction or we can project reaction onto something like an animal. Like I could see Cleo suddenly jump and run from her sister or something and say, oh, that's a reaction. But internally, I, I suspect it's not actually a reaction. It's just a, it's just a, a process of movements and, and energy changing and something moving from slow to fast. But we have an internal reaction that's going on all the time. We're reacting when we're not even physically moving at all. We're, we react 
like un, unhindered, un, endlessly within thought we're reacting, subtly and not so subtly. Um, like what is anxiety? We're, anxiety is we're reacting to our thoughts constantly. What is depression? Reacting to our thoughts, you know? Um, so many disorders uh, have to do with our own relationship with thought and our our belief and it's all belief based because we can have a, a sensation in the body associated with this but the belief ultimately is that because of this sensation I have to react to the thought and when we react to thoughts this is the tricky part is because when we react to thoughts we're, we're actually reacting with his other thoughts so we, when we end up down a thought road we're already disassociated we're already three steps down a reaction stream. So it can be hard to see that because we use thought to pacify ourselves. So we learn that at a young age too. We use thought to pacify ourselves and by using thought, we're actually avoiding the reactive aspects, the reactive tendencies we have toward thought. That's why slowing this process down can be so helpful. When we slow it down and we look at like one single thought and actually ask yourself, is there a reaction there? Is there a self there? Is there a subject there? Is there an object there? Is there anything but a ghost in this ghostly space that we call wherever a thought is doing nothing at all with no weight, no specific location, no implications, no struggle, no anything. It's when we start to react to thought that things start to feel much more heavy, real, solid, perpetual, moving through time, moving, you know, existing in space. Um, And there again, the, the beliefs really are what is ultimately binding, but they're very subtle beliefs and they're deeply ingrained beliefs. Like for instance, the belief that there is someone here experiencing something out there. The implications of that are huge, huge, right? Can you be mad at the government or an entity or a person, even someone who harmed you tremendously? Can you actually be mad at them when you fundamentally don't actually experience something in here and out there. You can't really, you know, you can react to the thoughts for a while, but ultimately, how can it happen? You know, the belief sets up the potential for so many more beliefs and reactions and struggles and so forth. Um, So that's why when we, we're talking about deeper realization and non-dual, we're talking about confronting the beliefs like subject, object, form and perception, um, self and everything else, <laughs> inner world, outer world. These are the fundamental beliefs we're, we're confronting and investigating and challenging because without those, nothing has anywhere to hold anymore. There's no view that can be formed. There's no foundation. Uh, on which to build anything, including suffering, including struggle, including anything. Um, no anchor point uh, left. There's just nowhere for suffering really to exist. All there can be left is an energetic signature, which, as we talked about the other day, can be intense for a while, um, but you will acclimatize. So thought at various levels of, uh, investigating thought at various levels of realization is always valuable. Um, initially, what we're just doing is 
just becoming simply aware that all these thoughts coming all day long about me, 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 or about Joe, 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 Joe's this, Joe's that, Joe's confused. Nope, Joe figured it out. Oh, no, Joe's confused again. Joe's lost. Joe's in deep samadhi. Oh, now Joe lost it because he's at a retreat, right? Recognizing how binding that is if you believe it, but how kind of absurd it is if you step back and go, wait a minute, where's Joe? <laughs> like, really, where is he? Let me go check it out. Um, so I, in this conversation, in this talk, I kind of point out a lot of potential ways to approach this, but approaching it with consistency is helpful. So maybe to you, it makes the most sense to just become aware of thoughts, just watching thoughts. Watch the next thought appear. Wait till it appears, whatever it is. What does it say? Does it say, oh, uh, I'm confused again? Or, well, this only works for a little while, then it, then it stops working for me. You know, I'm back in my mind or something. That's the thought, right? You're going to believe that thought? Or are you not going to believe that thought? You just recognize one single thought. That's all you have to do. Then just become aware of the next thought arising, next thought. What's going to come? Become vigilant. Look for it. Not straining, not, not um, pushing or struggling or trying to, definitely not trying to push thoughts away or keep thoughts out. That's not the point. We don't want them, we don't need them to be kept out when we actually are in the business of dispelling our, our attachment to them. When we're in the business of actually recognizing a thought as such, then it's more like welcoming them than pushing them out. So we're not, so disassociating with thought. It's like, okay, just bring up the next thought. I want to see it. I want to see what it is. Bring it on. So that's one approach. Another is, as I said before, you can, you can just take any thought that, that arises or any thought that you're noticing as a thought in the moment and just put it into focus, that one thought. Is it a narrative? Does it say I'm confused? Does it say whatever, anything it says, you know, I'm hungry. But just pull that thought right into focus and just notice it. Don't, don't move away from it. Don't try to dissolve it. Don't think about it. Just hold it there. Just stop, stop the projector on that one frame and just stay there. And just the act of doing this without having to make conclusions will show you so much. It can take some time, but it will show you so much because you'll realize you don't have to struggle with thought. You don't have to pay attention to thought like it's some kind of movie you have to pay attention to or you're gonna be lost. Um, that there's really not much to one, to a thought, that it's not even obvious where or what a thought actually is, um, and how rather calm it can be to not engage in the film strip of thought, but just stop it on one frame, that you don't actually have to go on and on and on, thinking, thinking, pushing, pulling in the mind, struggling, trying to figure yourself out or something. That's just thoughts. Right, Trying to figure yourself out is just thoughts. In fact, to back up, when we talk about spirituality, we talk about awakening and all that. Don't confuse that with trying to figure out your problem. <laughs> don't confuse that with trying to figure something out about yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. Trying to figure out something about yourself is really just believing the thoughts about Joe. 
All I'm saying is, well, first of all, stop doing that and then just see what happens. That's all I'm saying. Um, we're not doing this to try to figure something out because if you're trying to figure something out, trying to solve something about yourself, all of that to me is just more thought. The truth will come to you. The truth will dawn on you. The, the living truth, the experience, the true experience, the authentic experience will dawn upon you. You know, it just dawns upon you. That's what happens. You don't, you don't make it happen. You don't figure it out. You don't solve something. It dawns. It just appears. Or even another way of saying it, the mind is just stops enough that it just, it's obvious that it's already there. It doesn't even have to dawn, really, but it just comes into focus or it comes into clarity. Another approach would be to ask, and again, take any of these approaches, and if it works for you, it feels valuable, it feels juicy, and you can keep working with it, then, then work with it. Take some time with it, you know. Um, but So another one would be to ask yourself, well, what belief is shaping my experience right now? This is a little, maybe a little more, could be a little more slippery, especially if you try to think about it. But you don't have to think about it. Just ask. What belief is shaping my experience right now? And then just kind of go quiet and see what comes. And it might be a belief like, I'm in the wrong place. Like, whoa, wow. How long have I had that belief? How long have I been carrying the belief around that I'm in the wrong place? Or I'm in the wrong life? Or I can't figure it out? How long have I been carrying that belief around? What is the cost of believing that, that I can't figure it out? Right? What if you just discard the belief? What is it then? Well. Without that belief compelling me to try to figure it out or to believe I can't figure it out, then I neither have to figure it out nor am I in a state where I can't figure it out. That's a false dichotomy, right? If you discard that belief. For instance, that's just a for instance, you have to find the belief that's defining your experience, but you can always ask yourself, what belief is defining my experience right now? And as we wake up or whatever, however you want to say it, they get subtler and subtler, but they can still be found, right? be a belief something like I have to do something I have to figure out the right thing to do right now how does that make you feel to believe that does it give you a sense of urgency does it make you feel like so you know life hangs in the balance of you solving some problem so if you notice oh that's a belief I have that's like always there I have to figure out what to do you could ask yourself could I live without that belief what if I challenge that belief what if I ask myself if that belief just simply weren't there, how would I feel right now? Would you feel a little bit better? Would you feel a lot better? Would you feel free? I don't know. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't even know, but you can actually ask yourself, okay, well, let's just see what happens when I let go of this belief for a while. So that's another method, again, is just asking, what belief is defining my experience now? And take some time. Sometimes it doesn't come right away. You may have to sit there for a bit. And it'll just appear like, oh my God, that's the belief I've been operating from for years. Can be this this one can be really uh, releasing for you if it if it sort of resonates and you give it some time to to show itself. 